All right, cool. My name is Heather Mosier. I'm a recovered alcoholic. What? Uh, my sobriety date is 8-26-16. Super grateful for that. Uh, thank you, Josh, for inviting me to speak in Hattiesburg, Mississippi. I grew up in Oklahoma. Uh, I'm definitely geographically challenged, and so I had to ask my husband what state is MS. I was not sure <laughs> if it was Missouri or where it was, but um, how cool that we get to get together in this way, modem to modem, and do this. And uh, I'll just be talking about what I was like and what happened and what I'm like now as a result of my spiritual awakening from working the steps. Um, so like I said, I grew up in Oklahoma. I had a very normal childhood. I had two very loving parents. Uh, they were very good to me. They're, they're both still alive and together. Um, the only thing I can say that was interesting about my childhood is the fact that my mom is Pentecostal and schizophrenic. So that makes for some interesting parenting styles, but I survived it. Um, I, I had everything I wanted and more. My parents were very good to me, but I, from my earliest age, I was always a nervous kid. I was always an uncomfortable kid. I was always feeling like people didn't like me or I didn't quite fit in. I could see that my cousins were bonded together. I could see that my aunts and uncles seemed to be bonded together. I just always felt like there was this invisible line separating me from you and I couldn't quite figure out what was wrong with me. I was very nervous and insecure in school even though I did very well, um, always straight A's. Um, I was the kid in English class that if we're taking turns reading a paragraph, I would count how many kids ahead I am so I could pre-read my paragraph so I didn't mess it up when it got to me because that would be just too humiliating and embarrassing. Um, and I didn't know other people did that. I thought something was severely wrong with me. I was the kid in seventh grade that would throw up before going to school because I wasn't sure who was going to sit with me at lunch. I had, looking back on it now, I had tons of friends. I was in the cool crowd, um, but I had no clue that I was. I had no clue that I actually had friends that cared about me. I just always felt separate from. Um, if we skip forward to, I took my first drink, I believe I was 14. Um, I remember sneaking out with some friends. It was the summer before my freshman year and we went to a high school party and I drank a pint of Everclear. <laughs> and uh, I remember the night I had fun, um, but what's crazy is I just remember people saying, oh, you're drinking too much or no, you can't drink that. And I just didn't understand it. Um, from drink one, I had what we call the allergy, the physical allergy, which means I have this phenomenon of craving when I put it in my body. I cannot experience the craving if I have not put it in my body, but when it goes in, I need more. Whatever you got, I will do. Um, I do remember thinking, uh, I probably can just drink a lot because I'm German and Irish. That probably explains my tolerance level or why I drink a lot. I don't have any alcoholics in my family. I don't, I don't have any drug addicts in my family. I uh, seem to be the enigma, the special one. So um, my parents are very Christian. I was brought up in a very strict household. Alcohol was the devil. Uh, so I always hid my drinking. Uh, my parents shipped me off to a Christian private school for a year. That didn't work out. I came back tried a different school. Um, I just was really in conflict with my parents from my teenage years on. I really look back and I know that they tried to help me, 
but I was not, I didn't have ears to hear any of it. I really wanted to experiment and live my life because alcohol did something for me that I couldn't put my finger on or explain. But all of a sudden I wasn't so insecure. All of a sudden I had friends. All of a sudden I could be the life of the party and I was comfortable in my skin. There was something wrong inside me that alcohol fixed. And of course, these are high school years and so it did progress with outside issues. And those became a predominant thing in my life uh, from 16, 17 and 18. Uh, I remember when I graduated high school at 18, my high school boyfriend and I were really tired of the party scene and we agreed to just move away and to never speak to our high school clique again. Uh, and we did. And I stayed sober. I stayed sober for the next 13 years. And that's something that is really weird when we look back on it, but kind of like we were talking about before the meeting started, there's a, there's a man in, in our book uh, called The Man of 30 Story. And he was able to stop and stay stopped for 25 years until he retired. And when he picked up the drink again, he was dead in four years. So I highly identify with the man of 30 story. I stayed sober for 13 years, but what I wanna focus on is my internal condition. And I hope I can explain this in a way that you can understand. I hated my life. And I always thought that happiness was just on the other corner of me getting XYZ. Uh, and so the first thing was I was 19 when I bought my first home. I wanted to have my own home. I didn't want to depend on anybody. I bought a beautiful three bedroom home in a beautiful little town in Oklahoma. And the first thing I thought after buying a home was I need a baby. So I decorated a nursery and, and I wasn't even in love with the guy that I was with at the time, but kid number one comes. Um, and I thought being a mom was what was going to make me happy. And so I had this, this kid, this little baby girl, and I was 21 by the time I had her. And man, that was hard. And that was my first experience with what looked like severe postpartum depression of some sort. And I started going to psychiatrists and psychologists from that point on, um, and counselors and therapists and, and everything in that field. Um, and because of my strict upbringing, you're not allowed to have a bastard child. So uh, we had to get married. So I married. Uh, the father of my daughter, and we had another kid three years later, a little boy, and I was really thinking getting married would fix it, getting having a husband would fix it, um, having a family would fix it. And now once I had my second kid, uh, I didn't want to leave them in daycare, I wanted to raise my children, and so working from home would fix it. And so I created a graphic design company, and I worked from home very successfully for almost a decade. And so I did that, and in the meantime, while I'm doing that, like I said, I'm going to every psychiatrist, psychologist, therapist, counselor under the sun trying to figure out what's going on with me, what is wrong with me. I feel chronically depressed, chronically unhappy, chronic anxiety and depression. And there never was any relief for me. I am not knocking psychiatry or real dual diagnosis. Uh, those are amazing avenues for a lot of people. I can only speak on my experience and I did everything the doctors asked me to do and nothing fixed me, nothing worked. I got no relief, no relief. And so one thing that became apparent to me was the husband was wrong. I needed to get rid of husband number one and get husband number two. So I did that and still that did not fix my internal condition. And there's a line in the book says that we are a victim of the delusion that we're gonna wrest satisfaction and happiness out of this world if we just manage well.
And, and that's the delusion I lived in, that happiness was finally going to be in my externals being a certain way. The right diagnosis, the right medication, the right whatever. Uh, I kept searching for happiness in all the wrong places, so I, I never found it. Um, and it's so weird looking back on that now. Um, God really had his hand in lining up things in order for me to be able to get to a place to seek him because I've always had faith. I've always believed in God. I've always had a conception, um, but that didn't serve me any good when I needed to stay sober. So what happened was I was diagnosed with uh, ADHD and was given Adderall and I started to abuse it. Um, at the same time, I had two surgeries back to back one that I did need, and the other one was a back surgery that I do not believe that I needed. Um, this may sound odd, but my spiritual malady manifests itself in various ways, and one of those ways was chronic pain. And I believed with every fiber in my being that I was mentally ill and physically ill, and the doctors just couldn't find what was wrong with me. And so we have 13 years of me searching and searching and searching, and finally one doctor was like, you know what, let's just cut some nerves in your back. Let's see if this helps. And so I had that surgery too, and I became addicted to prescription medication. Uh, I remember alcohol always being in the background once the pills came to the forefront, right? I remember coming home from picking up my kids from school and spending my last $13 on a bottle of Crown, and I'm thinking, this might be a problem. Nah, it's not a problem. I'm just broke. That's the problem. Most people just have money and can buy as much crown as they want. And so my second marriage uh, fell apart for reasons unrelated. But and he was a very kind guy. I don't want to ever say anything bad about him. Um, but it was not a marriage. And the way that that marriage fell apart really destroyed me. I really um, needed to be somebody's wife and needed someone to want me and desire me in order for me to feel like I had value. And the way that it fell apart uh, was the opposite of that. Um, I really didn't understand what was wrong with me. So that was my catalyst, if you will, for me pushing the effort button on my life. I just literally pushed the effort button. I left my kids with their dad, my first ex-husband, and I took off. I took off and I uh, went to hang out with the kids from high school. I hadn't seen them in more than 13 years. And, um, and I started buying uh, drugs from her, pills. And I met the wrong crowd at the wrong time. Um, within, within five days of leaving my kids and leaving husband number two, um, I am much more than just an alcoholic, I am a, a drug addict uh, of the 10th degree of whatever you can imagine is the worst drug addict, that's the kind that I was in five days. And I had been a church going stay at home mom for 10 years before this. And so it just didn't, I couldn't wrap my brain around what was happening to my life. Um, I want to back up real quick before I move into that phase. I forgot to mention um, when I was 29 years old, I was still sober. I didn't uh, use again until 31. But when I was 29, um, we went to Thanksgiving at my sister's house. And it's my mom and my dad and my sister. And I'm in the room, but they're talking about me like I'm not in the room, but I am. I can hear them. And I remember my dad saying to my mom and my sister, you know, 
there's just something mentally wrong with Heather. She's just morally bankrupt and spiritually defective and she's abrasive and that's why nobody likes her. And I remember thinking at the time how wrong my dad was that he didn't know me and I was severely just misunderstood. Um, and I would find out years later how right my dad was that I was morally bankrupt and spiritually defective and my dad could see my spiritual malady even a few years before alcoholism was in my life. So when we, when we fast forward, uh, I am constantly the perpetual victim. Nobody likes me, nobody treats me right, nobody understands me. I'm just always getting the wrong end of the stick in my mind. And so I just self-destructed. I literally left my kids. It was in May of 2013. And I haven't been allowed to have them since. Um, the next four years were pure hell. I got arrested a lot. Um, I've been sold. I've survived a lot of things. Um, and I really didn't see purpose in me being alive. And I thought that people would just be better off if I wasn't on the earth. And I was just kind of like waiting to die. I remember getting loaded with this dude one night and uh and he was afraid of how much i was consuming and he was like heather you're gonna die and i looked at him and i said when when because i'm i'm not dying and i'm ready to i really didn't think that i would survive that life i really didn't know that there was a way out i didn't even know what was wrong with me um and so i started going to detoxes in Oklahoma. I was a frequent flyer at a certain detox. Um, and I remember the second time I was there, I remember sitting in a little process group with a counselor and I'm crying and I'm asking the counselor, why aren't my kids enough? Why can't I stop getting loaded for my kids? I love them more. And for some reason they're not enough. And he didn't have any answers for me. And I don't blame him. He didn't know, uh, but he handed me a grief packet and he asked me to just please go work on my grief packet. Uh, today, I know that grief packets do not treat chronic alcoholism. And so I'm a, I'm a big vocal person around talking about what our problem is and what the solution is. Um, I moved to Kansas with a guy trying to get sober in Kansas. Uh, that didn't work. We came back to Oklahoma. Um, he had went to jail at one point and I'm living alone in a very, very seedy, shady motel on the west side of Oklahoma City. And uh, the guy that lived in the room under me had agreed to buy me some substances when he got paid on Friday. Um, but I was about two or three days sober come Friday and I was in a lot of pain and I was really sick and tired of my life. and. Um, I was going through my stuff and I found a book that's like one of the daily readers that our program uses, one of those uh, daily reflection type thing uh, that my best friend from high school had snuck into my stuff one time when she saw me a few months earlier at a different hotel. And I find this Jesus Calling book is what it's called and I start reading it for that day and I start crying and I noticed that she put a photo of her and I in it. Um, and she wrote a letter in it. And so 
I was really just really tired of getting loaded. I was really tired of alcohol. I was really tired of drugs. I was really tired of my life. And something switched in me. And I called my dad. My dad had told me five months prior to never call him again. I was as good as dead to my dad. He said, Heather, don't ever call here again. You need more help than what we can give you. Just please don't call here again unless you want to go to treatment. And so I didn't call for five or six months. Um, but that day I did. And I, I said, Dad, I'm ready to go to treatment. I'm ready to go back. And my dad is a very old man. He drives very slow, much under the speed limit. And it should have taken him about an hour and a half to get to where I was. And he got there in 45 minutes. And the reason that that is important is because my dad pulled into the parking lot of this hotel the same time the guy that lived under me did. The guy that was going to buy me party supplies. And I just remember having this like moment of choice where I could either wave my dad away. He didn't even know which room I was in. Um, I could send him back and I could, I could get loaded for another day or I, could, or I could surrender and go with my dad. There was just something in me that couldn't do that to my dad. Um, if he had arrived five minutes later, I wouldn't have left with him. And uh, I took my stuff. I went downstairs and I left with my dad. And he takes me back to the same detox that I'd been in a few times before. And based on that model of detox, I knew without a shadow of a doubt that I was going to get loaded again the day that I left. This detox was drying me out, but something insane within me was taking me back to it, even though I was sober. I didn't know what that was or why, but I remember um, crying to the clinician there, and I was telling her, when I get out of here in seven days, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get loaded again, and I don't want to. Please send me somewhere else longer. I need to be somewhere longer uh, than seven days. And she handed me a business card of a guy named Bob, and I called Bob, and he answered his phone. <laughs> I get upset talking about Bob because I just reconnected with him recently. So this guy doesn't know me from Adam and he's at a business dinner, lunch, and he answers his phone while he's at dinner, but he steps outside to talk to me. And I tell him what's going on with me and I tell him what insurance I have and I'm telling him I need help. And he said, there's this fantastic place in the hill country near Kerrville, Texas, and they accept your insurance and they'll even fly you out. And I was just so excited to go somewhere for longer than 70, seven days. Now I get to go for 30 days and maybe that time frame would help me learn how to stay sober. So God put me on a plane. <laughs> uh, technically, my best friend from high school did. My parents were so done with me. They did not want to pick me up from this detox. Um, they sent my best friend from high school, the same girl that had snuck the book and the photo in my stuff earlier. So she came and picked me up, took me to the airport, put me on the plane, and I uh, get picked up from the airport by someone who works at the treatment center. And she's telling me all about this town, Kerrville, and all about this treatment center that I'm heading to. And, and it just sounds like a sober town. I honestly thought that everybody in this town was in sobriety, was in recovery. I didn't know, like, regular people lived there at all. I was like, just how cool. There's, like, thousands of people sober here. Uh, and so I just got really excited because this was a whole different world. I had never experienced what I was about to experience. And she got me excited about it. This woman gave me hope, um, just a little sliver of hope that people can recover in an hour car ride. Uh, and so 
when I get there, it's Friday the 13th, November 2015. I'm seven days sober. You'll notice that wasn't my sobriety date. So uh, I'm seven days sober and they put me in a detox until Monday morning. They put me in a detox and they hand me my first big book. <laughs> uh, and they tell me to read the first 164 pages while I'm wasting three days in detox and to please highlight anything I identify with, anything that intrigues me. And so since I'm a great listener um, and rule follower, I was flipping through the back and reading the stories, not paying any attention to the first 164 at first. Um, but one day I'm laying in my bed and I'm, and I'm flipping through and reading it and there is a sentence on page 51 that I highlighted. It caught my eye and it says, leaving aside the drink question, they tell why living was so unsatisfactory. Because I can look at all, at that time, 33 years of my life, and it didn't matter if alcohol was involved or not, living was unsatisfactory. In fact, I could say that the times I spent sober were just as miserable as the times that I, that I wasn't sober. And so leaving aside the drink question, life sucked. I don't know how to adult well. I don't, I don't know how to deal well. I don't know what my resiliency factor should be, but I'm not enjoying life. And, and so that sentence really intrigued me and I, that's the only one that I highlighted. I didn't, I didn't understand the book. I didn't understand the language. I didn't understand any, anything else. But on Monday, they moved me to the main floor and I got to go to my first step one class. And thank God for this guy. He would become my first grand sponsor, and I didn't know that yet, but this guy uh, was teaching big book at this rehab. And he has a big dry erase board behind him, and he starts explaining the mental obsession and the physical allergy, the two qualifying questions that make somebody a chronic alcoholic or not. And I had never heard this language before. I had counselors asking me to rate my cravings one to 10 whether I was sober or not, I knew a different language. I didn't understand this language and he explained it in a way that I understood. That when I put it in my body, I have no control over the amount I take. And even when I'm sober, 30, 60, 90, 10 years removed, I have a mental obsession that takes me back. I have insane thinking that precedes the first drink. That I got down with, that explained why my kids weren't enough. I have this mental obsession that prevents me from putting my hand on the hot stove that I could get down with. And so for the first time in my life, I'm being explained what is wrong with me and what explains why I couldn't stay sober. Because whether or not addiction or alcoholism is a choice uh, is a huge debate in the world, you know, and this guy was explaining what chronic alcoholism even is. And I was really identifying and getting down with it at once. And he drew the, the cycle of addiction from the doctor's opinion, where we start off restless, irritable, discontented, sober. And then we succumb to the desire, mental obsession put in our body. The drink one goes in, the phenomenon of craving develops. We go through a spree, whatever that looks like. We emerge remorseful and we make a firm resolution. I'm not doing this shit ever again. I'm done and I mean it. He says, the problem is, is you don't have the power to make that choice and you will grow restless, irritable, and discontented again, and eventually the mental obsession will win and you will get loaded again. I was so overwhelmed. I was like a sponge absorbing this information. I couldn't believe I had never heard this before. I couldn't believe the other three detoxes never talked about this. Um, this perfectly explained what was wrong with me. And it just got me so, so excited. And so I go through step two class and step three class and step four class. and 
this guy was just amazing. Um, he changed my life and I will forever be grateful uh, for the, the hope that he gave me and, and the facts about this illness that he instilled in me. So uh, I get out of treatment and I go to sober living. Um, but there's a guy. Remember, I, I'm a spiritually sick person and I need validation in order for me to have any value. So I search out whatever guy will pay attention to me and he doesn't stay sober. Um, and so I did relapse at three months, right before three months. So I picked up a three month dirty chip and I thought I got away with it. And I thought nobody knew. Uh, the problem was that me and God knew and it was eating me alive. And so what that guaranteed for me was a bigger relapse than ever. And so then there was a different guy and then there was a different guy and I just went on a huge 10 month binge spree in Kerrville. Um, I moved several different towns around Texas. Maybe that's the problem, you know, and I'm looking, I'm looking at my experience and I'm thinking, man, Kansas didn't work. Oklahoma didn't work. Now Texas isn't working. Like I'm really understanding why geographical fixes and geographical changes do not work for someone like me because my problem is an alcohol. My problem is Heather and wherever I go, there I am. And if I don't treat my spirit, I, I'm going to constantly be trying to run away from me and getting nowhere in this rat race. So, um, my last little run, this is like embarrassing to even like remember and talk about, but I was living in a storage unit um, in Kerrville, Texas in August. Um, in this little storage unit, it wasn't like a real professional storage unit. It was like, like little rickety buildings behind some like dude's house. This guy was like, his name was Pedro and he wouldn't wear pants and he was always trying to get me to party with him. And I didn't want to party with him, but I did want to sleep in the storage unit. It was like that level of like below this bottom where I know I'm not safe. I know this isn't sustainable. Like, what can I possibly do here? The tools had been laid at my feet and I just couldn't get out of my own way to pick them up. I had too many ideas. They didn't need to tell me I couldn't date. They didn't need to tell me what sober house they go to. They didn't need to tell me I need to work all these steps. Like they had too many ideas and I had too many ideas and I couldn't surrender to their ideas until I tried my ideas. So I'm living in this storage unit and I realize I've run out of ideas. And I call, I call a guy for help that uh, helps people get into treatment. I'm still good friends with him today. And he answered his phone. Uh, and he arranged for me to go back to the same treatment center that I went to 10 months earlier. It took me two more days to accept that help. But two days later, I, I did go back to treatment for the same treatment center for the fifth treatment center, second time for that one in Texas. Um, and I didn't think I would stay sober. I was really feeling quite hopeless. AA doesn't work. AA is not going to work for me. I'm just different. Y'all don't understand. Um, and so I asked this lady that worked there, this girl that teaches Big Book. She was fantastic too. And she hooked me up with a new sponsor. I just was not listening to my old sponsor. There was nothing wrong with my old sponsor, but I did not have ears to hear what she was saying. And I needed to have a new experience with what I thought AA was even about. So she hooked me up with a new sponsor who immediately came up there and started working the steps with me while I was in treatment. And that was like within week one. And I remember about the end of week one, I had had these reoccurring thoughts while I'm in treatment. Um, before I would go to bed, I really felt like God was nudging me to like pray <laughs> before I went to bed. And I just remember always 
you know, brushing that idea off and not praying. And I remember asking all the counselors and the therapists and the big book teachers and my sponsor, like, I'm like, okay, so I understand that the program is to get connected to God. So what do I need to do to get connected to God? And they're always like the steps. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I heard, but what else? There's got to be something else besides just that, because I just wasn't connecting that the steps were the pathway to God. I really thought there were these, all these other things that I need to be doing, and I just don't know what they are. And they all kept saying, it's the steps, it's the steps. And, and I remember that weekend, I had this epiphany moment of me refusing to pray. And then I go to an H&I and stands for hospitals and institutions. This guy was bringing a, a meeting into the treatment center and he knew me from town and he pulls me aside after this meeting and he says, Heather, what are you doing? You know what the solution is. You won't pick it up. And I decided to argue with him about why I didn't need to write a new fourth step. I already have my old one that I wrote the first time I was in treatment. Uh, I hadn't made any of those amends. It was all still applicable. Like I was arguing with him and I just remember him like snapping and getting in my face and calling me a B word. And, and he was just really laid into me some truth that I needed to hear. And he said, if you can't even surrender to that, you're never gonna stay sober. And I'm gonna go to your funeral. I argued with him and I ran back to my little room in rehab and I cried. And I realized that he was right. And this epiphany moment where I don't know if someone said it to me or if I thought it, but I just remember thinking about the praying. If I won't even pray, where is my relationship going to start? If I got to have a relationship with God, it's got to start somewhere. And if I won't even pray, how is he going to do anything for me, much less keep me sober? And so that guy that was mean to me, his name is Tony. And what he doesn't know is that he gave me the gift of real surrender that night. And I have stayed surrendered to God since that night. And I got on my knees and I started praying. Um, two very specific things that I was praying for was to not be homeless when I got out. I didn't know where I should go, but I, I just needed God to show me where I should go. Was I supposed to go back to Oklahoma? Was I supposed to just go do my prison time? Was I supposed to go to sober living? Was I supposed to try Austin? Like, I knew that I should not make a decision based in self, but I didn't know what God wanted me to do. And so I was praying for God to show me where to go when I got out. And the other thing I was praying for was any contact with my children. I really had not spoke, spoken to them at all in four years at that point. And I really wanted contact with my children. And so I prayed on my knees out loud every night. And I was so afraid that my roommate would think I was a fucking weirdo, but she didn't. She prayed with me. She got on her knees and she prayed too. And, and so that was super cool that she didn't think I was weird. Uh, and so I start praying and I start doing the steps and I start going to the meetings and I start doing everything that they asked me to do. I go to the committee meetings. I go to the community leaders. I got voted president of rehab my third week there. Like I'm doing everything they're asking me to do. And the day I get out of treatment, well, let me back up. So the weekend before I get out of treatment, God still had not answered me about where I was going when I got out. <laughs> and I'm arguing with my uh, discharge nurse lady because she's trying to make up my discharge plan and make some decisions and plan accordingly and I'm telling her no God hasn't told me where I'm going yet I'm waiting on God and she's like we're down to the wire Heather 
And so that was a Saturday and I said, okay, okay, come Monday, two days from now, I will call the sober houses in Kerrville that have not kicked me out. All sober houses in Kerrville besides two had kicked me out. One house had kicked me out three times, that one house. So I'd been kicked out of multiple houses, but I was gonna call the two that I had never been to yet. And so I was gonna make that phone call on Monday, but God did not let me wait till Monday. God intervened on Sunday. And I went to an outside meeting, uh, Turner House meeting is what they call it. I'd never heard of that meeting or been to it before in that whole year I was in Kerrville. And I go to this meeting and afterwards, the woman that comes up to me to hug me is the lady who had kicked me out of her house three times prior. I would have never called this lady ever in a million years. I was too humiliated. I thought I burnt that bridge. She comes up and hugs me and she says, thank God you're in treatment. I pray for you. And she said, when, when do you get out? And I said, I get out on Friday. She said, where are you going when you get out? And I said, I don't know. I'm homeless, uh, I don't know. And she said, I have one bed that just became available last night. Do you want me to save it for you? And I said, yeah, but I have no money. And she goes, I don't care. I know you're good for it, Heather. I see something in you that you don't see in yourself. And I'll give you another shot. And so I agreed to come back to that house that I had been kicked out of multiple times. and. I'm super excited. I get back on the druggy buggy, you know, the, the rehab van, and I'm going back to rehab. And I'm so excited that I'm not homeless and I know where I'm going because God told me where I'm going. And I go call my mom to let her know I'm not homeless. And I'm like, mom, I'm not homeless. I'm going back to that same house for free. And she's like, that's great, honey. Hey, your daughter's here. Do you want to talk to her? So I got to talk to my daughter for 10 minutes for the first time in four years. I hadn't even finished a fifth step yet. I had just been praying every day and surrendering to God's plan for me. And he answered both of those prayers before I even got into treatment. It was so cool to experience God doing something like that in my life because I just really felt like God was so far removed I couldn't experience it. I believed in it, I didn't know how to experience it. I didn't know how to feel it. And here it is blatantly in front of me, God answering my prayers. And it just gave me so much hope that maybe this, this program works. Maybe I need to keep doing what these people are asking me to do. So uh, I, go, I go to that, that sober house. Uh, the day I get out, I do my fifth step. And by the time I'm two months sober, I'm sponsoring others. And I'm going back to the same treatment center that I was just at. And I'm picking up four sponsees at a time. And I'm going up there two or three times a week. And I'm carrying the message as much as I can. And I'm doing H&Is as much as I can. And I had this really cool experience on a 12-step call. Walking away from that 12-step call, I had been around my main substances. But I helped this person instead. And I remember driving back on the way home thinking, holy fuck, I didn't know it save any. I didn't want to do any. Like maybe I'm recovered. Maybe I am in this position of neutrality that the 10th step promises. Maybe that, that thing is really real. I never thought I'd be able to be around certain things or situations and not want to do it. Yet here I am at two months sober, sponsoring people and carrying the message and safely helping someone on a 12-step call and walking away completely unharmed. It was just so cool. It was so cool because I was the girl that got a stack of desire chips 
completely humiliated a year before, and I thought this was just never going to happen for me. And I remember going to uh, the Maid Clubhouse there and attending our very first real AA meeting while I was in treatment. And I remember like everybody circling up and doing the Lord's Prayer all at once. There's about 200 people. I felt God that time. I felt God when I heard 200 people recite the Lord's Prayer. I just remember almost trembling inside because I could feel God telling me to stay here, that I need to be here, that I need what these people have. Um, and here it is coming to fruition two months later and I get through the steps that I'm sponsoring. And it's so cool because in Kerrville, they're real big on amends. They're real big on direct amends. There's no living amends bullshit. Like you're writing real inventory, extended third column. Like it's an extensive process. And I got so free of me that I can't describe it unless you yourself have done what I've done and you know what I'm talking about, of getting free of the bondage of self, uh, of realizing that this world doesn't revolve around me and I have a much bigger purpose that God got me sober so that I can not be an asshole and help his kids not die. Um, I get really passionate about this because God's done some amazing things for me in my recovery, some amazing God moments. And I get irritated and maybe I'm going to piss somebody off when I'm saying this, but the book tells me the more I disturb you about alcoholism, the better. So I'm going to go ahead and say it, but it's like this. I get really irritated when people like get chips or whatever, and they talk about how proud they are of themselves, how proud they are, of their, you know, and I'm like, the book doesn't say that. The book says that either God's removed your alcohol problem or he hasn't. Uh, I'm really, really big on giving God the credit for what he's done to me. I didn't do it. I am a powerless alcoholic of the hopeless variety, and I have a mental obsession, and I will never be able to stay sober on my own power. What I do have a choice to do is clear away me enough to be connected to the power. That's the only thing that I can take credit for, but even then the book calls it the gift of desperation. A gift is something you get given, so maybe I can't even claim that. Maybe I'm just one of the ones God chose. I'm not proud of my sobriety. I'm grateful. I'm so grateful that I've been given a life that I do not deserve. And so we look at Alcoholics Anonymous. I will have two things to share and then I'll shut up about the 12th step. So I really, really, truly believe that the 12th step, sponsoring others, is the secret handshake in AA. If you want to know why people are happy in AA, you want to know why people are smiling, why people are enjoying their life, it's because they worked all 12 steps. They're actually sponsoring others and they're giving away what was given to them for free and for fun. Um, I didn't get it at first. I thought everybody was full of shit. I thought I have to sponsor people. I, I have other things to do with my time. I don't want to do that. And my first sponsor instilled in me the idea that you need to get used to being inconvenienced. You are not the most important person in the room. I'm going to read three excerpts to back up what I'm saying. There is this weird twisted idea in society and even in Alcoholics Anonymous that we need to be more tolerant of ourselves, more patient with ourselves. We need to practice self-love and self-care. I am not meaning it in the way of valuing yourself. You absolutely should value yourself. I'm talking about being indulgent of yourself, your wants, your little plans and designs. Page 14 tells us exactly what needs to happen. It says a price must be paid. It's the destruction of self-centeredness. Page 74 says the rule is you must be hard on yourself, but always considerate of others. Hard on self, considerate of others. 
page 84 says love and tolerance of others is our code, not of self. Page 94 says to suggest how important it is that I place the welfare of other people ahead of my own. There is a reoccurring thing in this book. There's a, this is not a self-help program. This is an altruistic movement. I've got a mind for gold, spiritual gold, and give away the product for the rest of my life. And if I do that, I've tapped into the limitless load of what God can do for me. Limitless load of what God can do for me. And I see too, I see too many people that are uh, miserable because they won't sponsor. They won't work all the steps and sponsor. And, and I want to tell you, it's the best thing I've ever done to sit across from another girl and the lights come on and she's starting to get excited and have some hope. She's actually getting some shit out right in the four step. She actually trusts me in confidence to hear her fifth step. And she tells me things she's never told anyone else before. And then I get to see her go make amends and repair the damage in her life and start to have a completely different life. It's the coolest thing that God's ever allowed me to be a part of. My favorite line in the whole book is on page 153. It says, then you will know what it means to give of yourself so that others may survive and rediscover life. You will learn the full meaning of love thy neighbor as thyself. I know today that the reason I was so miserable for 13 years when I was sober in my 20s is because I was morally bankrupt and spiritually defective. I had untreated alcoholism. I had a spiritual malady. I was eaten up with my obsession of me through and through. And I had no clue that I was that delusional. Um, and it's so crazy. Working 12 simple steps uh, laid a foundation for me to see the truth about me and to realize that I can't even remove my self-centeredness on my own. I still have to have God's help for that. So the other idea around six and seven, oh, I need to work on me. No, read page 62. We don't have the power. You still need God's help. You can't do it on your own. There has to be this spiritual compass involved. We are working a spiritual program of action. If somebody has lost the power of choice, they're going to require a spiritual basis to stay stopped. Page 34 tells us that. And I know that I have lost the power of choice and I require a spiritual basis to stay stopped. But I want to communicate to you that we need you. Every single person in Hattiesburg, Mississippi, every single person on in the California coast and the New York coast and the Canada coast. I appreciate my buddies being here tonight. Like we need people coming out of the book, not raping the text and making some bullshit that AA is not. We need people actually following the basic text that work perfectly for the first 100. It's not broken. We've broken it. The fellowship has failed. The, the message that you hear in the rooms is not the message that's in our basic text. We need to make, make that happen. It's our job to fix that. And I'm super passionate about it because that's when sobriety and happiness go together. And so today, I just encourage you to get excited about God and get excited about the sobriety because we need you. We need you on God's army to help us because people are still dying. We got a lot of work to do. And I ask that you consider to not settle for sobriety. Focus on becoming recovered through this program of action, right? Just being sober is not enough. We're going to be miserable if we just try to aim for sobriety. We can get recovered and become happy, joyous, and free. I'm really grateful for my sobriety. Thank you guys for listening to me ramble for an hour. Thank you.